now is the uh, the time of our worship service where we look more deeply into to God's Word. Um, we have been going through the book of Genesis together. This is the first book of the Bible, and it, it lays out uh, the foundation of all that, that comes after it. Who, who is God? Who are we? Uh, why were we created? What's wrong with the world that we're in? Is there a way that it can be made right? And who is going to who is going to do that? Um, we've seen that, uh, that the God who created all things um, is uh, undertaking this mission of rescue and restoration um, to rescue us from the consequences of our sin and to make all things right. Uh, we've seen that uh, uh, in particular, he's going to use this couple, this really unlikely couple, uh, Abram and Sarah, who now their names are known as Abraham and Sarah. And it's going to be through them that this one that God promised, this promised one uh, who is going to eventually come, he's going to come through their family line to fulfill this promise of rescue and restoration. We're continuing this uh, uh, through Genesis as we're in chapter 21 uh, this morning. If you're uh, following along in one of those Bibles in front of you or in, your, in the chair underneath, uh, you'll find us on page 15. And uh, remember the past several weeks, God has reiterated this promise of uh, a child that is going to come to Abram, Abraham and Sarah, uh, the, or Sarah, this child named Isaac. And we've been waiting and waiting and waiting to see when and how he's going to come about. And this week, he is going to be born. Uh, so if you would, look with me. We're going to be uh, actually covering all of chapter 21 this morning uh, as we uh, look into God's Word uh, today. So let's begin there in verse 1 of chapter 21. Follow along with me. Uh, Yahweh visited Sarah as he had said. And Yahweh did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of your slave woman also, because he is your offspring. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and he sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. And she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the uh, commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my, pro- uh, my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so, uh, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. Uh, You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs lambs, uh, of the flock apart, and and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's through your word that you reveal yourself Uh, in a special way to us. We pray that you would do that this morning. May we see uh, your greatness, your glory, your sufficiency. Would we rest and trust in Jesus. Guide us as we look in your word this morning. Uh, Amen. I don't know if you notice, if you walk around Elizabeth City much, but there's these signs in different places that talk about the Wright brothers. There's one down uh, down here on Main Street outside what's now a, a lawyer's office. I think that used to be a, a little hotel where um, uh, the Wright brothers stayed as they came here to Elizabeth City to journey out to the um, to the Outer Banks to, to do their experiments on their flying machine and uh, another one's down here at the waterfront where they found a, a boat and this captain who would take them and this contraption they had built out to Kitty Hawk so they could begin to, to do these experiments. Well, I've been uh, just finished this 
biography on the, the Wright brothers. And it's interesting as they went and developed uh, and studied and produced this, this flying machine, uh, they, most of what they learned, a lot of it, was just by sitting around and watching birds. And when they, even when they were out at the Outer Banks, sometimes they would just sit around and watch birds and the locals just looked at them like they were just really strange. Um, but they, they did it. They were able to make this flying machine. But for the longest time, people said it's impossible. It's impossible. Men will never fly. And if you are attempting it and you believe that men can fly, you're crazy. You're insane. But the Wright brothers claim to have done it. And the people in their town of Dayton and Ohio thought that they were crazy. People at the Outer Banks for a while thought they were crazy. Well, after they did it, word started spreading around. They, they told the, the United States government that they had created a flying machine. But the U.S. government didn't listen to them because they said, you're, that's impossible. It can't happen. You're, there's no way you did this. And so they offered it to the, uh, to the French. Well, they, so they, they travel over to Europe with their flying machine and they ship it over there and they go around and they're in negotiations with the French and with some other uh, uh, national leaders of, of other countries about their plane. But the Wright brothers do something interesting. They never show or demonstrate their plane flying until negotiations have been secured because there's other people working on it as well and they don't want their... Uh, uh, the special things that they've come up with with anybody stealing them. Well, because they're going around claiming that they have created a flying machine that can fly, and yet nobody's seeing them do it, they're not producing evidence of it, the French ridiculed them. They, they claim that they're, that they're fakes, that they're imposters, that they're, they're just foolish men who, who have nothing and they're just lying because it's, it's impossible but eventually, once everything's secured, and they actually go back and forth from the U.S. to France multiple times over the course of a year or more before they ever publicly demonstrate the, the, their machine in flight. But then, these, these jeers and these calls of, of uh, calling the, the Wright brothers foolish and them doing and accomplishing something, that, trying to do something that's impossible, all of a sudden, they become not the fools of France, but champions in France. And everybody sings their praises because they realize they actually could do what they said they'd do. They had accomplished the impossible. Well, uh, in, in our passage this morning, we're talking about something that's even more impossible than that. Remember what, what's been talked about. Abraham and Sarah, God has said that they will have a children, have, ch- have a child. They're super old. Remember, God even changed Abraham's name. That he was going to be his name changed to be the father of a multitude. Yet he's wandering around and uh, he doesn't have any kids. Eventually, he got one because of his own uh, scheming, and we'll look at that a little bit. But but notice the impossibility and how much that is emphasized here in this in this passage. Look uh, back at the beginning of of chapter 21. Uh, Skip down to verses 5 through 7. Abraham was a hundred years old 
when his son Isaac was born to him. A hundred years old. And Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Remember, God has been calling Abraham and Sarah to trust in him, to depend upon him, for him to provide, that he is going to give them a son. And as we've been going through Genesis, we've seen they are struggling to do that. In the face of something this impossible, they have really struggled to trust God. Uh, they've, they've tried to take things on themselves. In fact, when they were first told that they were going to have children, what did both Abraham and Sarah do at different times? They laughed. They laughed in doubt and disbelief. So what did God say? Oh, the son you have, you know what we're going to name him? Laughter. Isaac. Now, why would, why would God do that? Why would he call them and name their son laughter? Is it a way to, every time they look at their son, to mock them and say, hey, remember your doubts? You untrusting old man and old woman. No. Look at, look at the change here. Instead of it being laughter of doubt, now it's a laughter of joy. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac, his son, was born. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. And everyone who hears will laugh over me. They're not going to be ridiculing her, but they're going to be laughing with her in joy and in excitement. Because of what God has done. You see, up to this point, Abraham and Sarah have doubted. They've struggled. Instead of depending and resting on God and His power in the face of the the impossible, they've tried to take things into their own strength. Remember this scheme of of taking Hagar, uh, Sarah's servant, and Abraham making her his wife, and having a son, Ishmael, through her. That would be the way. Surely that would be the way that, that a son would come about to old Abraham and old Sarah. But God says, no. In the face of the impossible, you're going to need to rest and trust in me. But look how God has provided. Notice Moses, the, the, the guy who's writing this account for us, he wants to place emphasis. He doesn't want us to miss the fact that in the midst, as we're, we're, we're faced with the impossible, that we can trust God. Notice verses 1 through, through 2. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken. God did as he said. God did as he promised. And a son came at the time that God told him one would come. God has done the impossible. Everything that God promised he would do. Everything that God said, even though you're looking at it and on the face of things, it seems like this could never happen. It's absolutely impossible. Abraham and Sarah, you are you are crazy to ever believe that something like this would happen. How foolish is it as they're walking through, waiting, trusting. But God comes 
And as He said, and as He promised, He did the impossible. He brought life from death. Sarah's womb was dead. She was unable to have children. Yet, as they looked and hoped and trusted in God, this God who can do the impossible brought life out of death. We struggle to trust God, don't we? We, tr- we struggle to believe and, and rely on Him, especially when things get incredibly difficult, when they approach the impossible. What, what Genesis is wanting to, to remind us of here is that in the face of the impossible, we can trust God. He is trustworthy. He will do what He has said. He will do what He has promised. Now, we've got to be careful. Because we could mistakenly think that means God works like some sort of magic genie. He can do the impossible. And so if you will just trust Him in the midst of the impossible, anything can happen. Uh, God, we're not reading uh, Disney's Aladdin. Uh, God is not a genie. The specifics of what he is talking about here is uh, one of, of these, this promise that he is, he is telling of the impossible, that, those, that, that life can come from death. He's showing us here in the context with Abraham and Sarah that we need to rely on him and that it's not gonna, the promises that he has given us of rescue and restoration will not come about through the efforts of man. That is impossible. If we have sinned and rebelled against God and God is holy and righteous and perfect, a good judge who, will, who justly will take care of sin, then like we've seen as we've gone through Genesis, it is impossible for us to ever earn our way back into favor with God. We are dead. Isn't that what God told Adam and Eve? On the day that you, you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. So how can those of us who are dead come to life? Something impossible. How can those of us who are dead, we've been cut off from all source of life and fellowship and relationship with our God, be brought to life? Well, if we see here in this passage the way that which God is, is, is carrying about His mission of rescue and restoration, is that in the face of the impossible... We can trust in the power of a God who can bring life out of death, who can bring Isaac out of Sarah's dead womb. Then can we not trust him to fulfill that promise? Is that not what we've seen as we've been looking our way through Genesis? This promised one who would come was Jesus, the ultimate one who is going to come and defeat the serpent. And take care of sin and all the suffering in the world. But in order to do that, he must accomplish the impossible. He died. Then he rose again. The fact that he he moves from, from death to life is confirmation and evidence of the fact that God does what he says he will do. And those of us who, in the face of the impossible, who realize there's no way we could ever earn our way into relationship with God, there's no way we could ever move from 
from death to life unless God does something. Here, these promises that God has extended to us, we see He does what He says. He will accomplish what He has promised. And by looking and trusting in Jesus, just as we saw what Abraham did, he he believed God and he was made right with God. Here, Moses wants us to see over and over again, we can trust God. Many of us may be doubting and wondering that now. Can we really trust God to do what he has said he will do? In the face of the impossible. But... It goes a little further than that. Because it's, it's one thing to think about God redeeming and, and, and saving, but I realize that I, I can't do that. But how is God going to respond when I mess up? Because I know I'm not perfect. I struggle. I sin against God. I still continue to struggle to trust and rely on Him. If we need to trust in God in the, in, the, in the face of the impossible, what about in the aftermath of our sin? I don't know if many of you watched the Olympics uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was supposed to be the, the story of, uh, of athletes competing and, and conquering their, their body and their sport and... Um, you know, overcoming hardship and difficulty, but that was part of it. What it also became a story of was about Ryan Lochte and his misadventures with a couple of swimmers in Rio. I don't know if any of you heard about this. Lochte and a couple other swimmers um, uh, went out uh, late uh, on, uh, for a night on the town after they had finished up their uh, all of their uh, events. They had too much to drink, were out way late, uh, caused some damage in a, a gas station. And then um, uh, as word began to get out, Lochte started making up stories about what had happened. And the reason that they were late, he, he had said that, that uh, they had been pulled over by people impersonating cops. And uh, somebody had held a gun to his head and he was, he was robbed and they had taken all of his stuff. But uh, eventually word the truth came out. Ryan Lochte's sin was revealed. And in the aftermath of Ryan Lochte's sin, things started crumbling around him. This is the most decorated Olympian male behind swimmer behind Michael Phelps. Without Michael Phelps, Ryan Lochte would be Michael Phelps. Um... But in the aftermath of his sin, all of Lochte's sponsors started dropping him. Speedo, Ralph Lauren, some laser hair removal company and a, a, a mattress group. None of them wanted to be associated with Ryan Lochte anymore. Why? Bad press. You sin. In the aftermath of your sin, it reflects poorly on those of us who have identified ourselves with you. Who are your sponsors? Speedo doesn't want to be caught up in any kind of connection with, with a sinner like that. Ralph Lauren doesn't want to be caught up with any... And especially the laser hair removal people don't want to be caught up with somebody like this. What about God? 
What about God? Can you trust Him in the aftermath of your sin? Or is He going to drop you? Notice what happens as we continue on. Uh, it, it goes on in, in verse 8 and following. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham. Hmm. You remember, we've talked about this a little bit already, but Abraham has been in a lot of sin. In fact, Really, we could look at all of Abraham's story and see it as one unfolding story of the aftermath of Abraham's sin. God appeared to Abraham and made a covenant with him and said, Abraham, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to bless you that you'll be a blessing and that you'll demonstrate my glory out into all the earth. Or, in sports terms, God said, Abraham, I'm going to be your sponsor. You are going to represent me to the world. But what happens? Time and time and time again. Abraham and Sarah sin over and over. The context of this passage here is in the aftermath of Abraham's sin. Isaac is born in the context of a family to a man who has two wives. And Ishmael is his son. The result of Abraham and Sarah not trusting God. The result of their sin. Yet, notice how verse 1 started. Remember, it's in the aftermath. The context of sin. Verse 1. Yahweh, the covenant God, visited Sarah as he had said. God didn't drop Abraham and Sarah in the aftermath of their sin. He comes to them. He continues to demonstrate himself faithful even though they have been unfaithful. In the midst of, in the aftermath of sin, we can trust and depend upon God. It, look, even as it, as it goes on, notice what happens. I'm not going to read all, all of this out again, but um, notice who, who else sins in this passage. Um, notice in verse 9, but when Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, who she had born to Abraham, laughing, so she said to Abraham, cast this slave woman with her son out, for they will not be heir with my son Isaac. This term laughing, at this point Ishmael would have been probably around 16. This isn't laughing like, uh, you know, he was having fun with, with Isaac. It was a, a laughing of, of mocking In fact, in the New Testament, when it reflects back on this passage, it describes what Ishmael was doing to Isaac as persecution. So here we see Ishmael uh, rejecting the child of promise. Remember what God has said. I'm going to bring about redemption and restoration. And it's actually going to be not through Ishmael, the, the, the work of Abraham and Sarah to try to bring about restoration in their own strength, but it's going to be through my work of me accomplishing the impossible. And even God says this here to, to Abraham. Look, uh, it's going to be through, in verse 12, it's going to be through Isaac 
that your offspring shall be named. Remember that term offspring is always pointing us back to the promised offspring that was spoken of back in Genesis 3.15, who is going to come. God is saying, look, Abraham, it's going to come through Isaac. It's not going to come through Ishmael. But here, Ishmael is persecuting the child of promise. He's persecuting the line that these covenant promises are going to come through. Ishmael is beginning to reject God's promises. He doesn't want to have anything to do with Isaac. He doesn't want to have anything to do with what God is promising through Isaac, and he persecutes him. And so God tells Abraham, look, uh, go ahead and, and, and send uh, Hagar and Ishmael away. Now we may think, this is how cruel that you would cast out this woman and, and, and your son, Abraham. Remember, we saw this before and it was done very cruelly. But here we even see in verse 12 and uh, verse 11, Abraham was very displeased. He was angry that this was what was coming about. But notice what happening here. God's not saying, hey, Abraham, ditch them. Get rid of them. Just cast them out and forget about them so that they could suffer out in the wilderness. No, God gives these promises again. Uh, He says, I will make a nation of your son because he is your offspring. God's saying not just kick Ishmael and, and Hagar to the curb, but God is telling Abraham... Entrust your son to me. And notice what happens as it goes on. They're out in the wilderness. They're suffering. They're struggling. Even though Abraham has provided them with water, it hasn't been enough. And they're about to to die. She sets Ishmael under this bush and she's waiting for him to die. And in verse 17, God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar. He, he says, uh, I've heard the voice of the boy where he is. And God shows compassion on him. He reiterates this promise in verse 18 that he's going to make him a great nation. And he provides them with water. And it goes up. And in verse 20, it says, And God was with the boy and he grew up. And he developed in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Here, Ishmael. In the aftermath of his sin, of rejecting the child of the promise, God still engages and pursues this guy. He persecutes the one that God says through him, the restoration of the world is going to ultimately come through. Ishmael rejects that, but God still doesn't cut him completely off and kick him to the curb. God pursues Ishmael, continuing to show his grace and his mercy to this kid and his mom in the wilderness. Even further, he develops him into a great nation. And it says God was with the boy. If God in some way is present and with Ishmael, ultimately, as we look in the New Testament, we see that it looks like Ishmael continued to to move on in advance in his rejection of these promises. But God is present with him in some way. What does that mean for you and for me? In the aftermath of our sin. For those who have not rejected the offer and the promise of God, who are looking and trusting to Jesus. In the aftermath of your sin... 
can you trust God? Is He still pursuing you? Does He still want to be involved and engaged in your life? Does He still, like it says in verse 21, will God visit you? Will He be faithful to what He has said? Will He fulfill what He has promised? The confidence we have from Scripture is that as we are looking in faith to the promises of God, and even in the aftermath of our sin, God isn't like Speedo and Ralph Lauren. He's not going to just cut you off the moment you sin. God is committed to you, to His promises and to His Word. He pursues you with His grace and His mercy. Look, if you are hoping and trusting in Jesus, this may sound crazy, but it doesn't matter what you do. God will not abandon or reject you. He will always be with you and come to you and pursue you. Now, does that mean, oh, well, if God's always going to be with me, then it doesn't matter what I do. I might as well just go and sin, and who cares? No. If the response of your God is that He loves you, and that He cares for you, and in your sin He pursues you, does that not move you to delight and rejoice in this God? Should that not move us to a life of obedience? And actually, oh, He's, he's committed Himself to me? And He's invited me to represent Him in the world? I don't want to misrepresent this God. If He's going to be this faithful to me, I want to live in a way that demonstrates His faithfulness to the world. And I want to live an obedient life. I want to live a life that reflects His goodness and His character. You see, not just in the midst of of the impossible are we to trust God, but in in the aftermath of our sin, we can also rely and trust in our God. But what about as things go forward? You know, my life changed a lot when we had kids. Um, uh, I started thinking about things I never thought of before. Which pencils are the best for kindergartners? And um, what kind of diapers don't leak in the middle of the night? Um, uh, having to figure out the, uh, the the songs to Mickey Mouse Clubhouse and singing them in the, the car to our kids. But then there's other things I'm worrying about now. More often, what's going to happen to my kids on this trip to their grandparents' house if I'm not there? What's going to happen this year now that Adelaide's starting kindergarten Are we making the right decision on where we're sending her to school? What's going to happen in the future? Are my kids going to walk with the Lord or are they going to be hurt? Am I going to wound and hurt them? The future's uncertain. I don't know what's going to happen. And it concerns and it it worries me. For you, it might not be about kindergarten and and about your your kids, although for those of you who have kids, that may be one of your concerns about the future. But for others of you, it may be in other other ways. What about your job? What's going to happen to me now that I've entered into the Coast Guard? 
Am I gonna? How long am I gonna be in Elizabeth City? Or that doctor's report that I just got last week? My future is uncertain. How do I trust God in the midst of that or this behavioral issue that's happening with with my child or this relationship that I have with my husband or my wife? What's going to happen? Can we trust God in the midst of these uncertainties of the future? Abraham has these same concerns now that uh, Isaac is here with him. The concerns of... uh, uh, is there going to be a peaceful place for him to live? Because remember, he doesn't have uh, permanent land here in Canaan where he's sojourning, living in tents. They're going to need a water source. They're going to need things to provide for them in the midst of it. Notice this interaction with uh, Abimelech in chapter in verses 22 and following address those things. They begin to, to, to get closer to the issues of the future as Abraham is seeking to make sure that Isaac is provided for that issues of, of peace and dis- disagreement over uh, and him talking with Abimelech about uh, what's going on with these wells. He's making sure that a covenant is made and that as much as he can try to provide for the uncertain future that Isaac and his offspring are going to be living in in the, in the land. But notice Abimelech's reason for pursuing and, and engaging in these conversations with Abraham. Notice in verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, also deal with me in the land that you're sojourning. Here is Abraham. He's just a, a, a wandering herdsman. And this nation and their army commander is worried about Abraham. Why? He says, because even Abimelech recognizes and he can see that God is with Abraham. It's evident to those around that God is working and doing things in Abraham's life in a certain way that God is present with him. Notice Abraham's response at the very, very last of this chapter. In verse 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Abraham plants this tree. He plants this tree as a constant reminder of God's promises, of his faithfulness, of the fact that God will be with him. And there he worships. He calls upon the name of Yahweh, the covenant God, that has been interacting with Abraham. And he calls him this, the everlasting God. I don't know if you remember when God made his covenant promises with Abraham. God said this to Abraham. I am going to make an everlasting covenant with you. I'm not just making a covenant with you, but I'm making a covenant with your children and their children. And that will also be an everlasting covenant. Here, Abraham, in response to what's unknown in the future, the uncertainty of the future, when Abimelech reminds and demonstrates to Abraham that God is indeed with him, and that God promised that he would be God to Abraham and to his children, and that he would be with them, Abraham's response is to worship and call upon the everlasting God. 
the God who gives everlasting promises. The covenant promises that God, that Abraham applied to Isaac, we saw back in, in verse, uh, verse 4 of chapter 21. Abraham circumcised Isaac. He applies the mark of God's covenant to his son that reminded Isaac and Abraham and all those who would come after them of the covenant faithful promises of the everlasting God. You see, for you and me, we're not assured what's going to happen in the future. We may suffer. We may struggle. We may face sickness. That diagnosis that you got may ultimately lead to your death. My children may be bullied in school. They may suffer greatly because of my failures in parenting. You may never get the job you want, and you may be miserable for the rest of your life in that position. The everlasting promises of God aren't that you'll have a great job, or that you won't suffer, or that you won't face difficulty, or that you won't face sickness. The promise is that in the face of an uncertain future, the everlasting God will be with you. And the promises that He has given you, He will surely bring to pass. That being that one day, the promised one that we're longing and we're waiting for will return. Jesus will come back and He'll make everything right. And the the effects of that sickness in your heart and of the abuse and bullying that you've experienced of however miserable that job has been or the relationships that you have faced, Jesus will make it all right. And He'll heal your heart. And the everlasting God will be with you and His people in this renewed and restored earth forever. That is the confidence that we have. We can trust our God. We can trust Him in the face of the impossible. We can trust Him in the aftermath of sin. We can trust Him with the uncertainties of the future. Because He's good and He's faithful. And he's, He will do what He says He will do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that Your promise...